Just gonna run this dog to see if we can find any type of uh, human remains that are left. Listen to Where Secrets Go to Die, The Disappearance of Derek Hennigan. From the Detroit Free Press, a new podcast set in the woods of Michigan's Upper Peninsula. Available on Apple, Spotify, Freep.com, or wherever you get your podcasts. Hi there, I'm Adam Young, editor of the Lubbock Avalanche Journal, and this is The Lead. In this weekly podcast, we highlight some of the big stories impacting Lubbock and the South Plains. I visit with a few of our reporters. We talk a bit about what they're working on and stories they expect to share in the coming days. So let's get started. And now we're joined by the Avalanche Journal's agriculture and environmental reporter, Brandy Addison. You had an interesting story over the weekend about the rattlesnake roundup that wrapped up on Sunday in Sweetwater. What did you learn about that? Yeah, so I actually got this story idea off Twitter, of course, because I'm a Gen Zer. Um, but I had seen someone had posted a bunch of letters from children saying that, hey, rattlesnakes are shy creatures or don't kill the snakes. Just a bunch of nice things about rattlesnakes. And what I learned while going through that thread was that um, an honors class, an honors seminar called um, Team Rattlesnake Rebrand, that's a part of Cal Poly, and advocates for snake preservation have banded together with a, about a thousand children from across the U.S. to send uh, rattlesnake love letters. I think that's what the actual campaign was called um, to a different a bunch of different households in Sweetwater, advocating for them to change their roundup to a no kill roundup. So essentially, instead of um, killing thirty five hundred to 4,000 pounds of rattlesnakes each year, selling the heads, selling the meat, selling the skins. Instead, they would just grab a handful. I'm not sure how many. They they didn't really say. Probably a dozen. I would imagine maybe a little over a dozen. Um, To use it for actual educational purposes that would um, basically teach proactive measures on rattlesnakes. So what to do to prevent from, uh, to your house and garden, to prevent uh, yourself from attracting rattlesnakes, uh, you know, wildflowers, feeds, things like that, keeping mice away, stuff like that. Um, but also, hey, wear boots, wear gloves. If you're up front, you know, up close in contact with a rattlesnake, um, back slowly away, right? Don't approach it. Don't go out to kill it. Because statistics do show that you're more likely to get bit by a rattlesnake if you do contact it and you do try to kill it and hunt it, right? So that's just what they want to do. They really want to promote safety, but they also want to prevent the mass slaughter of rattlesnakes. And you talked with organizer with the uh, JCs in Sweetwater about the mm-hmm. long, you know, proud tradition of this event they've mm-hmm. had for 65 years and uh, their take on the, uh, the the purpose of it and kind mm-hmm. of also get their feedback on that uh, request for the uh, from the love letters. Right, right. So they they said they would consider it, but I don't think that they've really quite understood the actual proposal of a no-kill event. I think that they wanted to still hunt them all and bring them all in and then sell them to a large buyer rather than just not hunt any at all. Um, but also, this is a really big deal for them because it brings about $8.3 million to the local economy each year, which is a pretty good amount. And a large portion of proceeds are donated to local organizations across the community, um, kids, you know, youth sports organizations, FFA, the local hospital, just a bunch of different organizations. So that's their biggest concern there. And so the advocacy groups are saying, hey, 
we, we still want this to be a big economic event, right? We just don't want rattlesnakes butchered live. And, and I even talked to one and I asked her, hey, are you vegan? Like, is that your issue? And she said, no. She just would rather support the sustainable harvest of rattlesnake. And right now there are no regulations for rattlesnakes in Texas. Um, and, I, and I'm, I'm going to go ahead and say that the Center for Biological Diversity did do a similar uh, effort last year. And it actually converted the last rattlesnake roundup in Georgia to um, a wildlife-friendly festival that actually didn't kill them. It's still called the Rattlesnake Roundup, but now it's just mainly educational. Still has a flea market, carnival, pageant, everything that their um, carnival or festival rather had beforehand. Yeah, would really be surprised to see any change coming anytime soon, but it was certainly a, a good talker, a good discussion. That I'm glad you were able to get a lot of different uh, um, stakeholders to, to visit with you about that one. Yeah, absolutely. And I did get a tech university professor as well. Um, and he basically just said, hey, this wasn't ever ecologically justified. Um, you know, they were never overpopulated maybe for human convenience, but like this was their land first. So it, it wasn't really ecologically justified. So he doesn't necessarily support it either. And then on a much lighter uh, uh, note, the uh, feature you had that dropped this week about the uh, famous Lubbock cocktail, the Chilton, um, good read, really good art from our uh, one of our uh, friend photographers, Mark Rogers, who went out to a local bar, got some of that. A couple bars, my yeah. favorite, my two favorite bars. So I, I intentionally had him go to Flipper's Tavern, uh, where I frequent regularly. Um, I like their hot dogs, um, but also West Table. I, I enjoy the brewery, um, and Cousin Morin is actually my good friend. He's the one that Mark went and took a photo of. Um, so yeah, I had him go to those too. Just, you know, personal bias here. <laughs> so what were you hoping to attack with that story and share with folks? So this is part of my Weird West Texas series where essentially we're um, exploring just a bunch of different things in West Texas. This isn't necessarily weird, but it is unique in the fact that it is only one of few cocktails in the U.S. that you can actually pinpoint back to its location. We we don't necessarily know the origin story of it, but we do know that its genesis is from Lubbock, Texas. We do know that much. Um, you know, you could say the same about the Manhattan in New York City, of course, right? Or Long Island iced tea, but that's also in its name. So I don't think that's as much as, uh, you know, a secret as the Chilton. Um, and, and what was interesting is that even in a very thorough quest, you know, at least on my behalf, looking all over the internet, talking to a bunch of different people, no one actually seems to like know anyone who was there when it happened at the Lubbock Country Club or even know someone who knew someone that was there, right? So it's really yeah. interesting. It's, yeah, it's kind of like mystical. A, there's not just like this really firm, defined origin story, but just uh, some roots in going back to the, the country club. Yeah, so the same story is spread all around, but at this point it could all be hearsay. Like, maybe there wasn't a Dr. Chilton at all, you know? Like, we don't know that. But it's what just, a good name, yeah. though, right? You have to name a drink after somebody like that. Yeah, absolutely. Absolutely. I, I mean, yeah, we don't know if that person, that supposed person was a male or female. We don't know if they were actually a doctor or if that was just a nickname. We don't even know if Dr. Chilton was their like last name. We just know that that that's the story we've been told all these years. Um, I looked at Texas Monthly and they were able to speak with um, the country club's longest tenure employee of 38 years back when they did this same search in 2017. And that bartender did say, it was, so she started as a bartender. She said that they were serving Chilton's back in 1978 when she started. So it has been around for at least half a century now. And the components of that are so simple. It's almost kind of hard to claim that, but it's just, I guess the, the simplicity is what makes it good. It's the, just, it's vodka, 
uh, a substantial amount of lemon juice, ice, and like uh, club soda or you know, yeah, soda water. Soda water. Uh, and, and it's only it's the juice of it should be equivalent to two lemons. So I thought that that was about two and a half ounces. You get your vitamin C that way. That's good. Yeah, yeah. And so I liked I like speaking with cousin because he basically said like. This is a drink literally made for West Texans. Like, it's something that you want to go drink on a patio after a long day on the farms, right? A long, hot day on the farms. You're dusty from West Texas weather. Um, and you just want to sit and you want to drink multiple. And this is a good way because it's not too sugary. It's not too tart. It's just, it's a perfect, refreshing drink. Getting me in the mood for one right now. Well, go over to Flippers or West Table. <laughs> Sounds good. Hey, thanks, Brandy. Yeah, thank you. And now we're joined by the Avalanche Journal's government and public policy reporter, Alex Driggers, and our trends and breaking news reporter, Mateo Rusilas. Hello, gentlemen. Hiya. Howdy. So I know, Mateo, you've been working on uh, compiling a list of the bills that our area state legislative delegation has filed. Uh, the deadline was Friday for to file bills. I know uh, as, we've, or as we're discussing this now, it hasn't quite hit the deadline yet, mm-hmm. but... Uh, been kind of a wide range. What have you learned from that so far? Yeah. So as like you said, we are filming this podcast on Friday, which is the deadline. So as of right now, 175 bills have been filed by our state delegation. Um, 125 come from Tepper, 129 come from Perry, and then one, oh, sorry, 26 come from Burroughs. So they deal with a wide range of different ideas and um, issues. I know Perry's focusing heavily on water this, this t- session. And then obviously a lot of the ones catching headlines in some of the discussions so far are some of uh, Representative Tepper's um, points on DEI and um, kind of, I'd hate to say, but like culture war Mm -hmm. issues uh, uh, playing out and trying to, um, I guess, cast in or higher education and um, state state mechanism there on that. Um, We had... Uh, Representative Tepper and Representative Burroughs in to visit with us at the beginning of the session to kind of talk about that. What were, your, some of, what were some of your takeaways from that, Alex? Yeah, that's right, Adam. Representative Tepper and uh, many of his 21 bills that the freshman representative has filed have been dealing with things like diversity, equity, and inclusion initiatives on college campuses, um, affirmative action. We saw that just uh, late last week. So, um, a lot of a lot of what Tepper is focusing on are those types of things. And he said it's time to get back to looking at what a person is capable of rather than uh, what race they might be or uh, what color their skin is. That's um, that's why Tepper has said that he's filed um, so many of these bills. He's also uh, taking a look at a few bills that limit um power uh, that local governments have in some areas, like reducing what's known as extraterritorial jurisdiction from as much as five miles out to about a half a mile out. And that's where um, that's kind of the gray zone between, you know, your incorporated city and your unincorporated uh, county. And, uh, you know, cities have limited powers within that region. So uh, Tepper wants to reduce that. And Representative Burroughs has also filed a number of... um, bills relating to city governments and local control, um, such things as delegating uh, more specifically what cities have power over regulating. Um, So, for instance, part of his bill says that uh, cities wouldn't be able to regulate anything having to do with agriculture. Um, So, 
Burroughs just doing what he calls making consistent regulations across the board um, so that the state has control over certain areas rather than cities. And he says that'll make it more attractive for companies and, and businesses to come to Texas, not having to deal with uh, various different regulations in different cities of the state. And then circling back on higher education, I know, Mateo, you've been focusing on the uh, the Puff Fund and the, uh, I guess, discussion, perhaps even some momentum for creating uh, an endowment or fund for like tech and U of H. Yes. So I know uh, Senator Perry has a bill that's actually in committee right now um, on higher education relating to Puff Fund and creating a constitutional amendment. That's what the Puff Fund is. It's created by the Texas Constitution, and so it therefore needs a constitutional amendment voted on by the citizens of Texas to add Texas Tech and U of H and other institutions to this Puff Fund. Um, I've talked to several people and said they have told me that this is kind of a difficult task because you have to get everyone on Texas on board with this um, constitutional amendment. So another easier route that I know Governor Greg Abbott and Lieutenant Governor um, Dan Patrick have said is they're in favor for creating a, an endowment, a, kind of like a $1 billion endowment for research. So this would help um, channel research f funding into universities to make sure that we are excelling in what we call the Carnegie research system. Um, so making sure like Texas Tech, it stays a Carnegie one uh, research school. Understood. Kind of a concession to some yeah. extent, but um, seems like that might be the more political expedient option that you know, at least the, the feedback we're, we're getting uh, we're, yeah. to roll with. Yeah. So we're going to have a story coming out later this week about kind of explaining what the Puff Fund is and why it's kind of so complicated. Um, because like I said, it's, from the, uh, it's embedded into the state constitution. So it's kind of harder to change. It's overseen very differently than what we expect it to be. And even though it's a $33 billion fund right now, tax, uh, UT and um, A&M only can receive portions of it. It has to go to specific projects. And so we're going to highlight those in this explainer piece that's coming out later this week. Sounds good. Thanks for your insights, gentlemen. Thank, Thank you. you, Adam. There's a lot going on around our community, and we love your story ideas and tips. Please feel free to reach out to me at ayoung at labaconline.com. Give me a call or hit me up on social media. Here's hoping the week ahead brings great news and developments to Lubbock in our area. The lead is produced with the help of the Avalanche Journal's trends and breaking news reporter Mateo Rusilis and photo editor Annie Rice. Thank you for listening, and I look forward to checking back in with you next week. Just going to run this dog to see if we can find any type of uh, human remains that are left. Listen to Where Secrets Go to Die, The Disappearance of Derek Hennigan. From the Detroit Free Press, a new podcast set in the woods of Michigan's Upper Peninsula. Available on Apple, Spotify, Freep.com, or wherever you get your podcasts.